verse 21 through 26. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. As most of you know, we've been doing our study on the Ten Commandments. And we've reached the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder. And since I only had two words in Hebrew to work with, I thought, I need to go somewhere else uh, to get at the heart of this passage, because it would have been very difficult for two words. You know, If I was Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, the great former preacher, I could probably pull that off, but I'm not. And so where better to go than the words of Jesus? Uh, a couple of quick things I want to say is next week, we'll be looking at the commandment, um, thou shall not commit adultery. And it's unavoidable for us to deal with some sensitive topics. Um, I, I want to say up front, uh, there's not going to be anything immodest or indecent. But I just want to warn you, there are certain things that the commandment says that we have to address within a church context. And so I'll do my best to um, handle that with discretion. But I wanted you to know in advance that it's God's word and we have to talk about certain things. So I wanted you to let that know in advance. Maybe have some conversations with your children ahead of time, um, if need be. I don't know. I'll leave that up to you um, to decide. But with that said, um, we are looking at the Ten Commandments. And I, I typically would read the Ten Commandments for the sake of time. We'll just read this text, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. And in this passage, de Jesus is dealing with the commandment, thou shall not murder. This is God's word. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indeed. Now we come before you asking that you might open up our hearts and minds to the teaching of your word. Lord, the truth in this is powerful, and I pray that for all of us it might lodge deeply in our hearts, that we might read, learn, mark, and inwardly digest all that you have written here. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Um, right after the flood in Genesis chapter 8 through verse 9, uh, God says three very important things to Noah. The first thing that God said to Noah was found in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 through 21. But just one snippet I want to read for you. He says, never again will I curse the ground and strike down every living creature. 
And what's God, what is the meaning behind that? God says, I will protect your, your life from being harmed by nature. Next, in chapter 9, verse 2, uh, God said, The fear and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and they shall be in your hands. And the meaning behind this is God saying, I will protect your life from being harmed by animals. And then the third thing God said in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, is whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And the meaning behind this is God says, I will protect your life from being harmed by each other. Now, why does God say this? Why does God say this? Why, right after the flood, God reemphasizes the preciousness of life? That's why he said it. Imagine that the whole world was wiped out and only a handful of people remained. Noah lived in a time that can be only described as the culture of death. And because the culture of death reigned, God had to destroy the whole world. And right after he did, one of the first things that God does is reestablishes the preciousness of life. The, the dignity of life, the sacredness of life. One of the things that God does from the very outset is say, is say to Noah, life has infinite value. That's why I'm not going to let um, the, the nature destroy it. That's why I'm not going to let animals destroy it. That's why I'm not going to let even another human being destroy it. Life is too precious. So much so that I am going to protect life at all costs. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here at the very beginning of his public ministry. Friends, do you realize how precious your life is? You know, we live in a culture in which that's not taught much. That life is precious and sacred. That life has infinite value. I remember growing up as a young child, um, the most expensive and precious thing we had was a china set. And my mother kept it in, in this cabinet. And, every, and it only came out once a year, and it was on Christmas. And she would often look at me and she said, Dennis, get the china set. And immediately my palms started sweating. <laughs> and, and I would walk over to the cabinet and I would take the china set. I wouldn't even take like two or three at a time. I'd take one at a time. And I'd walk slowly and I could hear my brother's voice in the back of me saying, boy, you better don't drop that. <laughs> Under so much pressure, I began to shake. Why? Because I knew how precious this was to my mother. I didn't want to drop and break it, and so I handled it with care. And, and friends, when we look at the sixth, sixth commandment, yes, God is saying, do not murder. But, but the teaching behind the sixth commandment is this. God is saying, recognize the preciousness of life. Re recognize the sacredness of life. Recognize how precious each and every one of us are before the living God. You know, uh, recently, I don't know why I looked this up. I was just curious, but I looked up, what, what does a human life cost? I know that that's a little bit morbid. But I thought, I said, I, I'm just interested. Do you know the statistical life of each and every one of us inside you today is worth $10 million to the U.S. government? I was shocked. I was like, that much? Right? $10 million. But let me tell you today, that's not enough for your life. 
In fact, Jesus actually tells us and, and hints at how precious the human life um, is with this one verse. He says, what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his very soul? Think about the implications of that verse for a moment. What Jesus is saying is this, your life is so precious that it's not worth all of the riches in the world for. Think about that. That's how precious your life is. That's how much your life matters to God. And in, in, in view of that, he's saying that's how precious your life should be to one another. That, that when you look at the fact that you, if, if you were to get all the riches of the world and lose your very soul, Jesus said, it's not enough. It's too high a price to pay. There, there's no way we can trade the infinite for the finite. No way. Now, some of you might be saying, well, Pastor Dennis, how precious is our life if eight or nine billion of us are on the planet? And I would say infinitely still precious. You know, in our world today, the way it works is the more you have of something, the less of value it is. In fact, some companies would try to decrease the production of certain items to drive up the price. That's, that's our economy. The more you have of something, the less expensive or, or the cheaper it is. But not in God's economy. In God's economy, the price of a human life never depreciates. It's always held in the highest standard and of the highest value. And to understand what Jesus is saying in this passage, you have to understand that. Because you'll wonder to yourself, why does he go from talking about murder to being angry and so forth? Because in Jesus' mind, the human life is precious. It's of infinite value. And what I want to look at at in this passage really briefly is three things that Jesus does to really show us this. First of all, Jesus goes back to the very beginning. Second of all, Jesus goes below the surface. And thirdly, Jesus shows us the beauty of reconciliation. And by doing these things, he shows us the preciousness of every human life. First of all, Jesus goes back to the beginning. Look at verse number 21. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. Now, friends, look that Jesus does not say, it is written, or truly, truly, I say unto you. If Jesus had said, it is written, or truly, truly, I say unto you, he would be trying to emphasize the correct teaching of the Sixth Commandment. But by saying, you have heard it said, he's calling out a false understanding of the Sixth Commandment. And what was the false understanding of the Sixth Commandment that the Pharisees taught? The Pharisees taught that all you have to do to break the Sixth Commandment, or all that's required in the Sixth Commandment, is that you not physically murder someone. That's it. You could be angry at them. You could, be, you, you could insult them. You could say all sorts of things about them. But the one thing you cannot do is murder them. And Jesus is saying, look, that's, that's true, but that understanding of the human life is too narrow. It's far, far too small. Jesus is saying that human life is so precious that it's not enough for you to just say, well, I don't murder anybody, and therefore I keep the sixth commandment. He has a right understanding of human anthropology. And here's what Jesus is hearkening back to. He's hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27, 
when God says, when the Bible says this, God created man in his own image after his own likeness. That's how powerful uh, the human life is, that we're created in the image of God. Look, everything that God creates glorifies God. I have three dogs. They glorify God just by being dogs. You all know how I feel about my dogs, so I won't take the time to talk about that here. Let's just say they don't match their values, right? <laughs> now, now, the trees glorify God. The birds glorify Every aspect of God's creation glorifies God. But we glorify God in a very unique way in that we image God. Now, what does it mean that we image God? Well, the, the Bible seems to suggest that what it means to image God is that we're the only part of God's creation that got his attributes, his divine attributes, his divine attributes as love and joy, the ability to know, the ability to rule, the ability to have compassion, personality, the ability to communicate on a higher level than any other creation. What makes you precious before the almighty God is that you and I have his attributes. I love what C.S. Lewis says in, in The Weight of Glory, the very last chapter. He says this. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Look at the person on the side of you. Okay, give them. Lewis is saying that because we're created in the image of God, that's the holiest thing that you could ever imagine. It's the holiest thing on earth. Why, why is that the case? Why, why would Lewis make such a statement like that? That our neighbor is the holiest object to our senses that we could perceive with our senses. This is the image of God reasoning. And by the way, the world understands this. I remember when I was young, I was watching SN, uh, SNL late, right? I had different rules in my house. And, and one night, a singer by uh, the name of Sinead O'Connor took a picture of the Pope and ripped it. And, and she was the first person I knew that got canceled. Because the very next day, she lost her record label. The very next day, she lost um, um, like, uh, thing, like shows that she was supposed to put on. Um, I mean, all of her friends disowned her. Everyone disowned her. Why? I mean, she just ripped the picture of the Pope. It's not like she cursed out the Pope or sat down with the Pope. No, no, no. It was simply ripping a picture. You see, what everybody knew, and, and by the way, you don't have to be a Christian to recognize this because non-Christians recognize this. When you rip the picture of the Pope, that image of the Pope, it's like you're ripping him. And hear me today, ever since the fall, mankind has been ripping the image of God every time we kill one another. When Cain killed Abel, what was he doing? Ripping the image of God. When, when um, Lamech killed the, the man that just insulted him, what, what happened? Ripping the image of God. Every time we see a murder in our society today, what is that? That's ripping the image of God because you and I are made in the image of God. And what Jesus is saying here is that the Pharisees miss this reality. They're thinking too narrow and too small if they think, oh, the only way we break the sixth commandment is if we actually kill someone. No. It's much deeper than that. Which brings me to the second point, and it's this. Jesus takes us below the surface. Verse 22 down to verse number 23. 
Jesus said, you've heard it said that anyone, that if you break, if you kill someone, that's breaking the sixth commandment. But Jesus actually expands that, and he says, here is how we break the sixth commandment now. First of all, he says the word anger. Anger breaks the sixth commandment. Now, let me pause and say this. He's not talking about the little flare-ups that you and I have every now and then. You know, when somebody does something we don't like, we get a little angry, or somebody cuts us off uh, while we're driving, we get a little angry. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the little flare-ups. What he's talking about here is so is that anger that's like boils over over time. It's the kind of anger that Cain had towards Abel. It's the kind of anger that the older brother had towards the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son. If I were to, if I were to describe the anger that's here, it's resentment anger. It's resentment anger. You know, resentment doesn't happen in a moment. When, when you get to the point when you resent someone, that's anger that's built up over time. You know, that's anger by the fact that you feel like you've been wronged in some way or someone has disrespected you over a long period of time. There, there's some of us inside you today, we might have resentment anger towards a parent or resentment anger towards a family member or somebody in our past that said something that deeply impacted us. Impacted us. That's what Jesus is talking about here with anger, the kind of resentment that builds up over time that's never corrected. Jesus is saying that anger, if we nurse that, if we don't address that, demonstrates that we don't understand the value of the human soul. Because if you understand the value of a human soul, the preciousness of a human soul, the moment you start having anger well up in you and resentment well up in you, you would go and take care of that right away. Because I could tell you this, the premeditated uh, response of anger and resentment leads to premeditated mur murder. That's what happened to Cain, right? He got more and more angry at Abel, more and more angry at Abel until finally it spilled out. So Jesus at the very beginning says, no, 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 no. Deal with that anger. Deal with that resentment. Let's look at the second thing real quick. Um, in here he says, whoever insults his brother. The word insult there in, in the Greek is the word racha. And it means, it means the kind of insults we give in families. Now, the, this is in particularly interesting to me. In the ancient areas, you had a hierarchical system. And within families, you'd have one group that would put down the other group in the family with insults. It would insult, like, oh, you're of a lower social class within the group. But over time, it spilled out into culture where Raqqa became a way of describing those that were of a lower social class than you. You see this in the Bible with this, uh, the way the Jews and the Samaritans interacted with each other, right? The Jews looked down on the Samaritans. That's why, by the way, the story of the Good Samaritan is such a powerful story. And the way Jesus used the story was so perfect because Jesus knew that the Jews hated the Samaritans, disliked them, looked down on them because of their religious and social class. And Jesus says, what does it mean to love your neighbor? It's to help the one that's on the street. And oh, by the way, who did that? The Samaritan. The Samaritan. In fact, uh, I think it's in Luke. They got so angry at Jesus one day, they called him a dirty Samaritan. 
That's raka. That's looking down on someone else. And it's not just that society that does it. It does it, we do it in every society. Where we see wealthy looking down on the poor. Or the educated looking down on the uneducated. Some of you in your own schools. Middle school, I know, could be particularly difficult here. And high school, where you have those that are more popular that look down on the, one, on the ones that are less popular. It's in the human heart to continuously look down on one another because of some perceived superiority. Well, brothers and sisters, what Jesus is saying here is that if we look down on one another, we are devaluing the preciousness of the human life. That everyone before God is valuable and we need not look down on anybody because of their social or economic status. Now look at the third one. It says, not only insults will be liable to the council, but if you say, you fool, will be liable to hellfire. Now, what does he mean here by you fool? The word fool here is the Greek word moros, where we get the term moron. And what Jesus is saying here is that when we put down people and devalue people because of their beliefs, whether it be religious or political and cultural, that because somebody believes something differently from us, we devalue them. We devalue their image. Now look, Jesus is saying all three of these things are wrong. If we have resentment in our hearts, if we look down on others, or we invalidate people based on their own beliefs, Jesus said that's breaking the sixth commandment. Now, as I read this, none of us walk out of this unbloodied. Um, in one sense or another, all of us have broken the sixth commandment, either in word, thought, or deed. But one of the things I love about scripture is that even though Jesus shows us the law and shows us our sin and shows us the areas that we need to change, he always presents us with grace and a way forward. And that's my third point. What is the way forward for us as we look at this commandment and we know that, look, there are times when we harbor resentment. There are times when we look down on people because of their social class. Or we, look down, on, or we uh, look down on people because of the things that they believe, no matter who they are. What's the remedy for all of that? Jesus tells us here. He gives two illustrations. And there's something that connects to il the both illustrations. Look at the one in verse 23. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. And notice what he says next. First, be reconciled to your brother. What connects these two illustrations together? Reconciliation. That's what Jesus says. Do you know Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 said that Jesus Christ has given us two things the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. And both of them are in this passage. First of all, the ministry of reconciliation. In the example that he gives in verse 23 and 24, he is inside the temple. And the Bible says that he is offering a gift. Now, uh, let me pull back and say this. Anytime you read scripture and you read one portion that he's offering a gift, you need to think he is worshiping. 
There are three things that uh, ancient Israelites did that define true worship. One is offering, one is prayer, and one is fasting. So here, all three is imputed in this. This person is religious, they're in the temple, they're worshiping, they're enjoying the benefits of the temple, and yet there are people outside of the temple that he must reconcile with. And Jesus is saying, I would rather you stop your worship before me and go be reconciled with your brother. Now, what Jesus is saying here actually goes a little bit deeper than that. Because remember, we've been giving the ministry of reconciliation. So what does this ministry of reconciliation look like? Turn to the Westminster Confession of Faith Larger Catechism. It's in your bulletin. What does this ministry of reconciliation look like? I'm not going to read the whole thing because we read it already. But notice the power behind what's being said here because it comes right from uh, various texts like this. It says this, all duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve life um, of ourselves and others. Notice the three words, all careful studies. That, that, that phrase, all careful studies, spawned what became known um, from the time of the writing to the Reformation to now, the doctrine of carefulness. And you can read the doctrine of carefulness in Thomas Watson. You can read the doctrine of, uh, of carefulness in John Frame. But here's the doctrine of carefulness. The doctrine of carefulness says that we as believers should treat every Christian life or every life no matter how small, no matter how old, no matter how sick, doesn't matter what it is, we need to treat it with the utmost carefulness and consider every aspect of them. That's why the, the writers of the Westminster Confession said um, that we should be quiet in mind, sober in meat, in our recreations, all these things. How, how can they be so expansive in that? Because they understand the doctrine of carefulness. And that's what the ministry of reconcilia reconciliation is. It's being careful to preserve the life and liberty of everyone around us. Jesus says as much in Matthew 25, 35 through 40. Listen to this, because this is powerful. This sums it up. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. How can Jesus reason like that? This is image of God reasoning and the doctrine of carefulness reasoning. Notice Jesus says, when you go out of the church and you minister on his behalf, what are you doing? You're doing it to him. That's image of God reasoning. There's no other way to look at that passage if you don't understand the image of God is in everyone and therefore we treat them carefully. We talk to them different. We treat them different. No matter what is going on in our lives, no matter how tired we may be. Now, sometimes we sin. I, I understand that. But notice the grace of God in this passage. That we need to treat the person that we meet every day, the person that we disagree with, whoever they may be, with the utmost carefulness. Why? Because they are created in the image of God. I could go on there, but I'm going to stop, and I'm going to say one more thing. Notice, that's the ministry of reconciliation, but notice the message of reconciliation. Verse 25 and 26. 
The Bible says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What, what is Jesus indicating here? Simply this, that if you stand in judgment, what you need to do is seek quickly to be reconciled to the one that is judging you. Don't you see the spiritual connection? Jesus is saying to each and every one of us inside here, there is a judge, a righteous judge, and his name is God. And the message of reconciliation, simply put, is that Jesus Christ, who bears the image of God, took on the image of man so that he might reconcile humanity who stands in judgment back to God. That's the ministry of the message of reconciliation and the power of reconciliation. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, that there was a time when death reigned. Death reigned before Christ. And yet, and yet the Bible tells us that because of Christ, when he came, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. That's what he came to give. And not just life, but life more abundantly. And for those of us who have been united with Christ, what is our mission? Our mission is to bring abundant life to all those around us. Whether it's true through meeting their physical needs or whether it's through meeting their spiritual needs through the proclamation of the gospel. That's what we're called to do. That's why uh, for Christians, the issue of abortion matters, right? Why does it matter? Because of the doctrine of carefulness. We need to be careful with life, whether in the womb or outside of the womb. That's why Christians, we, we, we don't support euthanasia. Why? Because of the doctrine of carefulness. We want to make sure all life is preserved. Why do you think Christians um, don't, don't support suicide or, or are grieved over suicide? Because we understand the preciousness of life. And look, in our day, it's surprising the numbers of, of suicide that happens. And I'm truly grieved by it. What, what does a person have to do to come to a place where they think their life is not important? All of us should be grieved by that. And that's why we need to love and, and seek out one another and make sure everyone is seen and accounted for in God's kingdom. Because there are times people are brought so low where they think their life doesn't matter, but it does. It's of infinite value to God. That's why Christ came and died for you. The infinite for you. That's the power of the sixth commandment that Jesus wants us to know. And brothers and sisters, we get to live that out on a daily basis. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you so much that in your economy, the economy of the king, we are reminded of the preciousness of life and, and the glorious task that we have to bring life to the world through our actions, through our words. Lord, uh, guard us from depreciating the life of any human being, but instead appreciating the life of the human being in which we value it as sacred. Bless us now in Jesus' name.